1979, a teenage girl opened fire at Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego, California. Twelve days before its 10-year anniversary, a young man opened fire at the Cleveland Elementary School seven hours away in Stockton. Seven people, including five children, were killed, and 40 were injured as a result of both shootings. This is part one of two, where we examine the first Cleveland Elementary School shooting committed by the first-ever female school shooter, Brenda Spencer. On Christmas morning in 1978, Brenda Spencer unwrapped her favorite gift, a 22 caliber rifle with a telescope sight and 500 rounds of ammunition. Over the years, she had developed an obsession with guns, but all she had was a plastic one with pellets. Her neighbors would find dead birds strewn across their yard from Brenda shooting them out of a tree just for fun. That year, she and another kid shot out all the windows at the school across the street she had once attended, Cleveland Elementary School. To quote one of her classmates, she was always talking about guns, bragging about the guns her father had. Brenda's garage was described as a fortress where she stored all the weapons. In her backyard, she dug a tunnel where she could hide. Her favorite television show was SWAT, especially the shooting scenes, and she was about to watch them live on her front doorstep. During the second week of January 1979, she bragged to classmates that she was going to do, quote, something big to get on TV. On Monday morning, January 29th, 1979, Brenda told her father she was sick and had to miss school. He went off to work, and she was left with the house all by herself. Brenda had told relatives that she had fantasized about being a sniper, but they probably assumed she wanted to shoot quote-unquote bad guys. They never could have imagined she would target innocent school children. When the coast was clear, Brenda stood in the doorway of her one-story home, clutching her new rifle. At 8.40 a.m., she pointed it at the schoolyard, a hundred feet away, through the door's window, and shot it out. Parents were still dropping off their children and kissing them goodbye when the shots rang out. As children screamed and scattered, Principal Burton Rag jumped into action and began ushering them into an auditorium. The students were told to lie down, and many prayed to God that they would make it out alive. As Principal Rag was tending to one of the wounded children, he was shot in the chest. The 53-year-old would die hours later while undergoing surgery. 56-year-old Mike Sutcher, a custodian, ran into the action attempting to help the students and fallen principal. With him, he had a blanket to cover Rag and prevent him from going into shock. The assistant principal saw everything from an office window, stating, I saw him lean down over Rag, and almost immediately two bullets hit him, spinning him around into the ground. Mike was pronounced dead at the scene. One child that witnessed their murders up close recalled that Mike was sprawled on the ground, asking for his shoes. She said, quote, but he had shoes on. Brenda fired an estimated 38 rounds, striking eight children over a span of 20 minutes. A fifth grader stated, quote, we were walking on the curb and then around the playground. We saw two legs sticking out of the bushes. It was Mr. Rag. There was another body near the workroom. It was Mike. We thought it was a gag, 
Then they told us it was for real. Officer Robert Robb was the first to arrive on the scene minutes after the shooting began. While carrying an injured child to safety, he was shot in the neck. Once more officers arrived on the scene, they discovered the shots were coming from a yellow house from across the street. A garbage truck was parked in front of the home, blocking Brenda from firing at the school. The area was corded off, a SWAT team arrived, and survivors were finally evacuated. After the shooting ceased, a reporter from the San Diego Tribune called the home's landline to get witness accounts, unaware that he had dialed the shooter's home. He asked Brenda if she knew anything about the shooting and what her name was. She said her name was Brenda and that she had seen the whole thing. When asked if she knew who did it, Brenda responded, a 16-year-old kid who lives at 6356 Alton Avenue. The reporter asked, isn't that your address? After giggling into the phone, Brenda said, sure, who do you think did it, and then hung up. He quickly called her back and asked to interview her. She answered and explained that she lied to her father about being sick so she could remain at home. She said, quote, I just don't like Mondays. Do you like Mondays? I did this because it's a way to cheer up the day. Nobody likes Mondays. She added, it just popped into my head about last Wednesday, I think. When asked if she was alone, Brenda said, You think I'd be doing it if someone was home? My dad's gonna kill me when he gets home and finds out about this. He's going to flip. This will really blow him away. The reporter told her she may have already killed three or four innocent people. She replied, Is that all? I saw lots of feathers flying. She went on to admit her prior arrests and said, quote, I've gotten into some fights. They usually don't last long. I usually open their skulls with a cleaver. Before hanging up on the journalist, she said, I shot a pig, I think, and I want to shoot some more. The reporter quickly asked if she was aiming for anyone specifically. Brenda responded, no one in particular, and ended the call. Authorities quickly made sure that her phone was isolated, meaning she couldn't make any outgoing calls, and that they were the only ones able to contact her. Brenda barricaded herself inside the home once she knew that she was surrounded. After hanging up on the SWAT team several times, police negotiator Olsen finally got her on the phone at noon. Brenda told him, I'm going to stay here a while. I want to have some more fun. It was fun seeing kids being shot in a group. It looked like a herd of cows standing around the one that was shot. It was really easy pickings. It was fun to watch the kids that had red or blue ski jackets. They made the best targets. It was like shooting ducks in a pond. It was so easy. I enjoyed watching them squirm around after they had been shot. She went on to say that she shot the custodian because he was making it more difficult for her to shoot the kids because he was, quote, getting the targets out of the way. Let me give you some advice. Don't chew bubblegum and drink whiskey at the same time. It ruins the bubblegum and you have to throw it away. Also, M&Ms and beer are a bad combination. It'll make you sick. She roared with laughter after telling Olsen this. At one point, Brenda promised him that she would come out, then hung up and stayed inside. She told the negotiator she was determined to continue shooting. She had plenty of ammunition and that she could hold out as long as police could. Through two hours of back and forth, Olsen finally established trust with Brenda and convinced her she wouldn't be killed if she surrendered. 
Six and a half hours after the shooting, at 3 p.m., Brenda placed her rifle down in her driveway before officers pinned her down. She stared straight ahead as officers drove her away in a squad car to the juvenile hall. She was held on two counts of murder and ten counts of assault with intent to commit murder. Brenda didn't give police a motive, but told them she had smoked marijuana, taken barbiturates, and consumed beer and whiskey. This would align with what police found strewn about the home, but when she surrendered, police said she was, quote, so lucid, it didn't appear that she was intoxicated. After providing blood and urine samples, she tested negative for any form of drugs and alcohol. Are there any kids hurt? The shooting began around 8.30 a.m. A sniper was firing random shots at school children on their way to class at Cleveland Elementary. Eight children and two adults, the school principal and a custodian, were felled quickly. The principal and custodian would die. For a while, the sniper, 16-year-old Brenda Spencer, kept police at bay, firing from her house across the street from the school at anything that moved. A police trainee was shot while trying to assist a wounded child. Inside the school, 320 students huddled in the auditorium, and just before noon, they were evacuated in buses. Anxious parents were reunited with their children. Police had the situation in hand now. While SWAT units approached and surrounded the house, police, parents, and friends negotiated with Brenda Spencer on the phone. She was armed with a 22 caliber semi-automatic with a scope and may have taken drugs and alcohol. She at first refused to talk surrender, claiming she could hold out for a week. But towards 3 p.m., it became a question of surrender or SWAT people storming the house after a tear gas barrage. Shortly after three, the word was out that Spencer would give it up, and then she did. SWAT officers escorted her from the house to custody, and the long and terrible San Carlos sniper siege was over. Doug McAllister, News 8, San Carlos. The most seriously injured were taken out as soon as the gunfire let up. Surgical teams at Alvarado Hospital went to work on the first six victims and quickly requested that no more of the injured be sent to the already overtaxed hospital. The school's principal and custodian were among the victims brought here. Principal Burton Rag died in surgery. Custodian Mike Sukar was dead on arrival. At Grossmont Hospital, another four children were brought in by police ambulance. Each had suffered gunshot wounds in the sniper attack, but hospital officials quickly pronounced their conditions as good. Concerned parents began to arrive. Not knowing yet whether their children were among the injured, they chose to wait here together, rather than at home, alone. And surprisingly, little more than an hour after she was brought in, 10-year-old Crystal Hardy went home with her parents. She had escaped with a minor injury and a bad fright. I got shot and Mr. Barnes said, um, Crystal, I mean, they said, he said, um, Duck, you guys run! Then I got shot, and then I went in the nurse's office, and I was bleeding a lot. I just was laying there. And then my placement came and brought me here. You must have been really scared. I was. It hurt. The bullet that went through her wrist didn't harm anything. It went through, didn't hit the bone, or we're just praising the Lord. While most parents met their children that were bused to a nearby school, a handful rushed to nearby hospitals. Ten-year-old Crystal Hardy and Julie Nobles, along with seven-year-old Audrey Stites, were discharged after treatment to minor wounds in the hand, elbow, or side. 
eight-year-old Monica Selvig, and nine-year-old Christy Buell were in critical but stable condition after surgery. Nine-year-old Cam Miller was shot through the back with an exit wound in his upper left chest, and eight-year-old Craig Vernon in the buttocks. Both were in good condition. Eight-year-old Mary Clark was one of the children evacuated to a nearby junior high. A bullet had passed through her abdomen, but she didn't tell anyone for seven hours. An officer would say, quote, She didn't tell anybody she was shot. She just went back to class. She was afraid to talk to anybody. All the children recovered from their physical wounds, but the psychological effects would last a lifetime. After the Columbine massacre in 1999, the Washington Post interviewed survivors of the Cleveland Elementary School shooting. Christy Buell, now 30, recalled the events. I saw the principal in the sticker bush, moaning. It was frightening. I can still hear it. The janitor used to give me erasers. Suddenly all the children were gone. I remember feeling weird, but not pain. I didn't see blood. Christy spent 42 days in the hospital, the longest of all the victims. Today, she has a foot-long scar across her stomach. Her parents never sought out psychological help, despite the fact that it was offered to them. She said, quote, We just kind of went on with life. Dad didn't want me to see a psychologist. He just said, we'll deal with it as a family. Dad set the direction, and I took the path. We talk about it all the time. It's an incident that will never leave my mind. I'm not traumatized for life or anything. If I hear a loud bang or a car backfire, it gets my heart beating, but that's about it. Cam Miller never sought psychological help either. Rather, his parents never got him the help, and he said he wished he had. He told the Washington Post, I didn't talk about it, I held it in. In junior high, a neighbor went around telling people, there's Cam, he's shot, and I'd deny it. Cam would later see Brenda in court before her sentence. He said, when I saw her, the look she gave me, her whole appearance was very evil and scary. Blank, empty stare. She just sat there and glared at me. A few months after the shooting, Christie's father Norm was at the doorstep of the Spencer's home. Norm wanted to tell him, quote, that I was a single father too, raising four kids alone. And I know it's a hard job and a thankless job. And I know you probably did the best you could, that Christy was going to be okay. Wallace Spencer was sitting in front of the TV. Without even looking, Wallace Spencer told him to go away. Before surrendering to police, Brenda had asked to speak with her father. But officers said he was too shaken up and in no condition to talk to his daughter. He would continue his silence for the rest of his life, avoiding journalists and reporters asking for comment. For Monica Selvig, the trauma she endured would carry into her adult life. At the age of 14, she began drinking and smoking, and eventually started doing harsh drugs. 22 years after the shooting, in 2001, she was arrested for dealing drugs. She believes her drug use was directly a result of never processing the morning she was shot as a child. The morning after the Cleveland school shooting, class resumed on a normal schedule for the traumatized students and staff. Before they arrived, a custodian knelt down and scrubbed bloodstains off the sidewalk. It didn't work. A fourth grader walked by and pointed at the stain. Mr. Rag tried to save a little kid there. The student told reporters he was scared. He thought the shooter would still be here. 
The new acting principal thought a quick return to normalcy would be the best route. He told reporters, quote, unless a child is out of control or sick, he ought to come back to school. Reporters asked several students walking into the school why they thought Brenda did it. The responses were, she didn't like Mondays, she was on drugs, and she was just sick. Some kids searched bushes and looked underneath cars, hoping to find bullets for souvenirs. The only physical reminder of the shooting would come through a monument resting in front of the flagpole. The plaque read, presented by the student body in memory of Burton Rag and Mike Sutcher, who died in service of helping others, January 29, 1979. The plaque would later be moved to a nearby street corner after the school's demolition in 2018. What we know about Brenda Spencer comes from her family, doctors, and her own mouth. The problem with Brenda's mouth is she tends to lie a lot. It's believed her disdain for police came from two previous encounters she had before the shooting. Once for shoplifting ammunition, and the other from shooting out the school's windows. She was a radical, according to one student, and cut class often. This resulted in a temporary suspension in 78. In late March, two months after the shooting, doctors concluded that Brenda had epilepsy, potentially stemming from a head injury due to a bicycle accident. The doctors sent a letter to the court in which they described the results of a brainwave test. They wrote that Brenda was, quote, grossly abnormal and shows a definite seizure disorder. It is my opinion that the trauma was likely the cause of her problem. They believed Brenda could be treated successfully with medications and psychotherapy. Surveys have shown that epilepsy is two to four times more common among violent offenders. A neurology professor at John Hopkins University Medical School, Dr. Pincus, wrote this on the subject. My view is that brain damage, not epilepsy, increases the chances of violent behavior. Brain damage, especially in limbic areas, can cause paranoia, and frontal damage can cause disinhibition. Paranoia and disinhibition are significant precipitators of violence, especially when combined with a history of child abuse. Limbic and or frontal damage can also cause seizures, but seizures themselves rarely cause violence though the presence of seizures can be indicative of brain damage. It is the brain damage, not the seizures, that disinhibits. Disinhibition, by definition, is saying or doing something on a whim, without thinking in advance of what could be unwanted or even dangerous as a result. It's clear just from the statements Brenda made to the reporter that she suffered severely from impulsivity. She couldn't articulate a justified reason for shooting at the school. She simply said that she didn't like Mondays and wanted to liven up the day. And when thinking about the repercussions, she wasn't worried about police at all. She only thought about her father's potential reaction, saying that he might blow up on her. Nearly a month after the shooting on February 23rd, Brenda Spencer was ordered to stand trial as an adult. If the court had decided to charge her as a juvenile, she would be out at the age of 23 in just seven years. Her trial began on October 1st, that year, in Orange County. It was moved here after the court found she wouldn't receive a fair trial in San Diego due to the case's publicity. In addition to the two counts of murder and nine counts of attempted murder, she received eight counts of assault with a deadly weapon, 
and one count of assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer. The trial would end just as quickly as it began, however, because that morning, she would change her plea to guilty. The trial would never actually take place. It was now out of the hands of public jurors. And because the case never went through a trial, Brenda's personal information would never be revealed. Her relationship with her family and the findings of psychological evaluations she underwent would never fully be revealed to the public. While Brenda's sentence was still pending, Irish rock band The Boomtown Rats released what would become a hit single, I Don't Like Mondays. It was written in four hours after they heard the news while touring the U.S. The song hit number one on charts in four different countries. The band was criticized for the song, and when asked why they wrote it, one member stated, It was such a senseless act. It was the perfect senseless act, and this was the perfect senseless reason for doing it. So perhaps I wrote the perfect senseless song to illustrate it. It wasn't an attempt to exploit tragedy. The same member said he regretted writing it later, claiming he made Brenda Spencer famous. That same month, Family members and victims of the shooting received a total of $350,000 after suing Brenda and her father. This money came from an insurance company that had insured Brenda and her father. Today, that would be $1.35 million. A majority of the funds went to the families of Principal Rag and Mike Sutcher. In exchange for a guilty plea, prosecutors dropped their attempt to prove special circumstances which could have meant life in prison without the possibility of parole. The guilty plea meant a maximum of 25 years to life and the possibility of parole. On April 4, 1980, 18-year-old Brenda Spencer was sentenced to the maximum amount, plus an additional eight five-year terms for assault with a deadly weapon, equaling 40 years on top of the 25 years to life. If Brenda served all of her time, she'd be in her 80s upon her release. Two months after her sentence, her father, Wallace Spencer, made the headlines. Sniper's dad weds pal. 17-year-old Sheila McCoy wasn't just a pal. She was Brenda's ex-cellmate in Juvenile Hall. Sheila escaped the juvenile facility and, with her parents' permission, wed Mr. Spencer, who was 41 years old. The couple had met when Wallace had visited his own daughter. The assistant district attorney learned through Sheila's probation officer and told reporters, The matter is of significant concern to us, owing to the background of the whole tragic case. In August, Wallace was cleared and charges were never filed. He didn't break the law. Years later, Wallace and Sheila's daughter would become a student of Christy Buell, one of the shooting victims. It's like the story came full circle. One day, their daughter told Christy, quote, My sister's in jail, referring to Brenda. In 1993, Brenda Spencer was interviewed from the California Institute for Women. Here is that interview. We met in a visiting area at the Frontera Women's Prison in Corona. A small woman, 
Brenda Spencer strikes you as quiet, reserved, polite, and intelligent. She told me that on that Monday morning in 1979, she was hallucinating after a week of drinking whiskey and taking the powerful drug PCP, a drug she says she bought at school. What does she remember about that morning? Do, re do you remember the gun? Mm-hmm. I remember the, the rifle because I had gotten that a month previous. As a Christmas present? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was for Christmas. From your father? Mm-hmm. Do you remember loading the gun? Do you remember pointing the gun? Mm -hmm. I remember looking out and, and seeing, like, commando types sneaking up on the house and stuff. And I don't remember actually going in and getting the rifle and loading it up. But I remember seeing them and being real scared and terrified. You know, they're coming to get me, or, and I have to protect myself and stuff. And I know somewhere in there I did go and get the, the rifle. So the whole thing to you, 14 years later, is just this drugged-out haze, basically. Yeah, it's really, it's really broken up and fragmented. It's, uh, I, I can't sit there and, and tell you, well, at this time I did this and at this time, you know, it's just little bits and pieces that have come back over the years. Um, like the week prior, that one, I, I don't really have any memories from that week ahead of the incident. And the week after, I was asleep, I was coming down off the, the street drugs and even that week, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of it. It's like I slept a lot and I was going through withdrawals and things. Brenda Spencer told me what she did that day was not first-degree murder, which takes planning, but the lesser crime of manslaughter. I don't sit here and, and plan on how to go out and kill people and stuff like that. That's, that's um, just not, that's not how I am or who I am and uh, how it was presented, and uh, it made me look like that. There were allegations that mm -hmm. Brenda Spencer got the rifle, loaded it, mm -hmm. planned all of this, and shot those people. Yeah, and they made it look like, you know, just for the fun of it and stuff, which is totally senseless. There's, uh, I, every day I live with, you know, the knowledge that I, I took the lives of two men, and that's real difficult. Two years after this interview, the prison Brenda was held in was the subject of a class action lawsuit. The lawsuit accused administrative and medical staff of, quote, cruel and unusual punishment and deliberate indifference to the health needs of inmates. Among the cases were instances of untreated or poorly treated pulmonary and cardiac problems, hypertension, sickle cell anemia, and cancer. Attorneys also attributed at least two prison deaths to the poor quality of healthcare, including the case of a mentally ill woman with gastrointestinal problems confined naked to a prison cell. The woman ingested her own body waste and eventually died of untreated pancreatitis and starvation. Brenda Spencer's first parole board hearing came in 1993, 13 years after her sentence. She waived her right to appear at the hearing and instead sent this letter to the media for immediate release. Quote, I am not trying to dodge responsibility for anything I did. 
I live with the unbearable pain every day of knowing that I was responsible for the death of two people and caused many others physical and emotional pain and suffering. No one can know just how hard that is to live with, but I'm not a murderer. I was and had been for many days before that incident, heavily under the influence of a lot of street drugs. I had been doing a lot of uppers and downers, combined with PCP and straight alcohol, for several days before the incident. Then that morning, I stayed home from school and started doing more. I started taking some pills that I had got from someone on the street, and I was taking these while smoking PCP and drinking straight whiskey. I started to hallucinate. I saw these commando types, all these people in paramilitary gear advancing on me from out of the schoolyard. It was so real. I barricaded myself in, got my rifle, and started firing. The SWAT came, I guess. But by then, I was so stoned, I just gave them my weapons. I remember talking to someone over the telephone from inside the house, but I sure couldn't tell you what I said. Over the years, the press has written some pretty wild tales about what I said, but whatever I said, it was the liquor and drugs talking. Anyone who knew me knew that I wouldn't hurt anyone or anything. But when it was all over in January of 1979, two people were dead and some little children were wounded. I must tell you that there's not a day that I don't see those people and those children in my mind, and not a day I don't wish with all my heart I could bring them back. But I'm not guilty of murder. I didn't know what I was doing. You can't, for malice, a required element for a first-degree murder conviction when you are under the influence of that many drugs and that much alcohol. And more important, after all these years, some serious inconsistencies have come to light about just who fired all those bullets that killed those people. For sure, the SWAT team lied in court about how many shots they fired and in what direction they were fired. A big question now emerges as to who, if anyone, was hit from fire from my rifle and who was hit by police fire. Clearly, when the SWAT team first arrived and before anyone had been shot, they acknowledged that they did not know what direction the shots were coming from. They lied about not firing at me in the house, and they also apparently lied about not firing toward the schoolyard. Also, although the police stated during my court hearings that the lab results showed no alcohol, no drugs or alcohol in my system at the time of my arrest, some people who are helping with my writ have gotten hold of independent lab results, which the prosecutor had done from the same blood sample and which show that I had potentially lethal levels of drugs in my system at the time. The prosecutor and my own defense attorney covered up this fact, and withheld this evidence from court, and withheld it from all doctors and psychiatrists who did reports and evaluations on me, trying to figure out what made me do it. So I was convicted as a cold-blooded killer, which I'm not. On top of that, once they arrested me and got me to Juvenile Hall, they gave me massive doses of powerful, mind-altering, psychotropic drugs, which kept me completely stoned for the next two years, and until I was finally transported to prison and was finally able to get off the drugs. I wasn't aware of anything at all while I was going through various court hearings. People who saw me said I was a zombie. They said what they told me to say, I did what they told me to do. I didn't even know until a few months ago that I had signed a plea bargain agreement for first-degree murder. I can tell you for sure that getting my court papers out of my prison file after all these years and learning that I was plea bargained was the biggest shock of my life. I sure didn't know anything about the law then, and being stoned on top of it, well, they could have told me to sign anything, and I would have. In the end of her statement, Brenda claimed that the doctors and psychologists that evaluated her never questioned her about the incident. 
and that they just wrote reports based on what police had told them, and that police had withheld things from them. In this report of her 1993 parole hearing, it stated that she is active in a group called Women Prisoners Convicted by Drugging, and in this group there is approximately 50 women, who all can document that they were given psychotropic drugs while being detained in the county jails and going through their trial. At the time, all these women were seeking to overturn their convictions, get a new trial, or a lighter sentence. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anything else about this group online, so this is all I can share. To clarify, instead of seeking parole, Brenda wants to challenge the conviction entirely through a petition for writ of habeas corpus. If this were granted, Brenda would receive another day in court and thus try and prove that she was subjected to unconstitutional conditions while incarcerated. I'm assuming Brenda did this because of the lawsuit against the prison where she was being held, in addition to her claims that she was drugged during her trial. Through the writ of habeas corpus, Brenda can ask the court to do one of the following release her from custody, have her term or incarceration reduced, have her rights declared and respected, or order the illegal conditions to be stopped and or corrected. Dr. Peter Langman wrote an article in 2016 about Brenda Spencer's parole hearings of 93, 94, 01, 05, and 09. It's titled, Brenda Spencer, Sorting Out the Contradictions. He said the purpose of this article was to set the record straight by examining claims she's made since her imprisonment. Dr. Langman goes over the records of each parole hearing and uses information from a book written by a private investigator involved in the case. The investigator, Eric Hart, published Does Anyone Like Mondays? The Brenda Spencer Murder Case in 2012. Eric interviewed Brenda's family members, friends, and neighbors within months of the shooting. According to Brenda's sister, she never carried forth with her threats. She would also brag about taking heavy drugs. But when she described their effects and what they looked like, I knew she was not telling the truth. In Brenda's 2001 court hearing, she told the parole board that she never discussed committing crimes with her friends. This was a lie, and it's proven most notably in Hart's interview with her old classmate and friend, Brent Fleming. This is the same friend Brenda was arrested with twice. This is what Brent had to say about Brenda. Quote, Brenda and I were always kind of planning things, but we never really carried them out. Brenda used to say that there were three dominations in the world. The first domination was people who planned things. The second domination was the people who did minor things, like misdemeanors. Then there was the third type of domination, like major things, such as sniping or burning or blowing things up. Brenda said that we were like the third type. Lots of times we would plan things like going to kill a cop or blow up a school or mug somebody for their money. Her most favorite thing was to kill a cop. She had two plans to kill a cop. The first was that I would take her 22 pellet gun and she would take her dad's Luger BB gun. We would take them to the park where the cops did their reports. The plan was that I was going to go to the passenger side window as she walked over to the driver's side window if it was up. She would ask the driver to roll the windows down. She'd use the pretense of maybe asking what time it was. When he did roll the window down, she was going to tell him that if he moved, that I was going to blow his head off. The second plan to kill a cop was to egg his car or break his window. We planned on running, then have him chase us into the boy's bathroom. We knew that the cop would probably chase us into the bathroom. And when he got there, she would hit him in the face with an axe. In 2001 and 2009, Brenda claimed that her father gifted her a rifle because he wanted her to kill herself, and that she had actually wanted a radio instead. 
This is contradicted by numerous family members. In 1979, her sister stated, I can specifically remember her bugging him about getting her a 22 rifle. She had been asking him for a long time. He finally got it for her this last Christmas. Like we heard in Brenda's statement from 1993, she claimed she shot at people because she was suffering hallucinations from drugs, while also claiming that police had actually fired the fatal shots. In other hearings, she claims that she shot up into the sky, or doesn't remember anything about the incident, and can't recall it. Basically, she lied a lot, and these lies are made obvious by her own contradictions. She couldn't even stick to one. At those same parole board hearings, Brenda came forward with new allegations. She claimed that her father had physically and sexually abused her, and that her siblings had physically and emotionally abused her as well. Considering that child abuse is rampant, and her father married her own cellmate that was the same age as his daughter, it wouldn't surprise me. However, Brenda made many contradicting statements about these allegations. Once, she stated that the abuse started at 7 and ended at 14, and another time stated that it started at 9 and ended at 16. She also said her father had admitted to it and apologized to her, but never presented any evidence of that. Allegations of any kind of abuse were never investigated by Hart because those allegations didn't surface while he was conducting interviews with her family and friends. However, when Hart interviewed the mother of Brent Fleming, the tables were kind of turned. The mother stated that Brenda was never disciplined or put on restrictions, and that Mr. Spencer would break down crying when there was a problem, and ask his daughter why she did the things she did. Brenda's brother also claimed that Wallace and Brenda's relationship was healthy. He stated, quote, My dad rarely had to physically punish us. He had good control of me and Brenda. He was somewhat strict when we were young kids. However, I thought in recent years he was too lenient on Brenda, and that he should have punished her sometimes rather than simply take the time to explain why he was upset with her. Basically, they had a great relationship. Brenda's mother confirmed these statements by saying, I do not think, especially a couple years ago, that he disciplined her enough. She could always wrap him around her finger. He never spanked her. She would always get her way. Further evidence comes from Brenda's sister, who said this during an interview. Brenda was a very difficult person to get along with. She was specifically difficult to please. She always wanted things her own way, and often talked back to my father. When she wanted something badly, she would keep after him until she got it. My father really tried to make her happy. He spent an incredible amount of time with her. They would go to the mountains every weekend. He did not require her to do any chores, and he placed few restrictions on her. I did the housework. I think she was a headache to him in that she often talked back, but he spent a lot of time with her and did a lot of things for her. Dr. Langman included these quotes in his article and summed up his conclusions with this, quote, There are several counts against believing the allegations of abuse and neglect. The first is that virtually nothing else Spencer claimed in her hearings was true. On this basis, there is little reason to believe his allegations. Second, if they were true, there is no reason she couldn't have mentioned them at the time of her arrest. Finally, there is the evidence of her family members themselves, as well as the other who knew the family. Though abuse can occur in secret, the complete lack of any hint of mistreatment by her family and the multiple positive comments about Spencer's relationship with her father suggest that she was lying about this just like she lied about so many other things.
Now I'm going to read the overall conclusion of Dr. Langman's article, in part. Quote, the constant dishonesty on the part of psychopathic shooters appears to be the result of several traits. First, their lack of empathy and lack of conscience apparently result in their simply not seeing the significance of having harmed or killed human beings. It just doesn't register with them. In addition, they seem constitutionally incapable of accepting responsibility for their actions. When this is combined with a flagrant disregard for the truth, it becomes natural for them to say anything that they think will be to their benefit. This tendency to lie is particularly challenging to deal with when psychopaths claim to be victims, which is very common. This is exactly what happened to Brenda Spencer. The longer she was denied parole, the more she claimed she was a victim. A sensitive person is likely to want to believe a story of victimization rather than risk being callous to someone who is reporting a history of incest or other kinds of abuse. Psychopaths are remarkably good at knowing how to appeal to other people's sense of empathy in order to manipulate them. In the past decade, scientists have found ways to diagnose people with psychopathy through a simple brain scan. A characteristic of psychopathy that society really hones in on is a lack of empathy. A study from King's College in 2012 found that male offenders diagnosed with psychopathy displayed reduced gray matter volumes in the anterior rostral prefrontal cortex and temporal poles. This is the part of the brain associated with empathy and feelings of guilt. Now let's say Brenda Spencer isn't a psychopath. Scientists have also found that people who suffer a brain injury may experience a lack of empathy, especially if that damage occurred to the frontal lobe. Two to three years before Brenda committed the shooting, she suffered a serious head injury from a bike accident. Her brother said that she blacked out and was still woozy the next day and her mother said she was in a complete daze from the accident. Her mother, brother, and sister all accounted this incident, but Brenda would later lie to the parole board, saying she sustained a head injury from her father striking her in the head. According to Dr. Langman, she apparently, quote, took a real incident and twisted it to make herself a victim. At Brenda's 2009 parole hearing, she told officials she was on medication for schizoaffective disorder and depression. Her mother, father, and sister all wrote letters in support of her release, despite Brenda's claims that they abused her. At the end, the parole board concluded that 50-year-old Brenda Spencer was not suitable for parole, and that she would and currently does pose an unreasonable risk of danger if released from prison. In September of 2021, Brenda voluntarily waived her right to a hearing. Her next hearing is expected to occur in September of this year. She'll be 60 years old. That's all for today's episode and part one of the Cleveland Elementary School shootings. Part two will release next Tuesday, March 8th, and I'll be discussing Patrick Purdy, who committed the second Cleveland Elementary School shooting in Stockton, California. Thank you so much for listening and welcome to the outro where I discuss somewhat recent lighthearted true crime news to boost the mood a little bit. But before that, make sure you hit those little stars on Spotify or iTunes. It really helps me out. Thank you. In Little Rock, Arkansas, there seems to be an active serial killer. But fear not, because Shadow Vision is coming to the rescue. This article comes from True Crime Oxygen. 
and it reads, a self-professed superhero who calls himself Shadow Vision has been patrolling the capital of Arkansas, vowing to hunt down an apparent serial killer in the area. And you know what? I haven't seen an article of them catching a serial killer or of him killing any more people, so maybe Shadow Vision got him. On Thursday, he told a follower on his Facebook page that he was in Little Rock this week, quote, hunting the serial killer. Shadow Vision said, I know that the serial stabber is keeping an eye on my page here, so this is a threat to you. When I find you, I will show you what I do to serial killers. I am hunting you right now. There have been four knife attacks in Little Rock since August of 2020, three of which were fatal, and investigators believe they are connected according to the Arkansas Times. Shadow Vision, whose real identity remains a mystery, is vowing to end that reign of terror. His Facebook bio states, I am Shadow Vision, a real-life superhero. I protect the innocent at whatever cost. I would sacrifice my own life to save an innocent life. The supposed vigilante claims to have, quote, exterminated two other serial killers years ago, though that information has not been verified. He told Oxygen.com via email that one of the exterminated killers was in North Carolina while the other was in Arkansas back in the 1990s. He also added that he loved hunting high-ranking gang members. He told Oxygen that he's originally from Belfast. He said, The reason I showed up in Little Rock years ago is because the city needed help. The other reason that I have also revealed myself to Arkansas and the world 11 months ago is that I got tired of turning on the TV and all I hear is people losing hope. So I wanted to show them that they got someone fighting for them out there. Give the people hope again. The vigilante typically wears a steel helmet, bulletproof chest, back plates, shoulder pads, fanged arm cuffs, handcuffs, two steel sace strapped to his thighs, and two katanas. He's dressed in all black. When asked on his Facebook page, he said it takes him about 20 minutes to get all suited up. Shadow Vision told Oxygen that he is getting close to catching the serial killer. In fact, he claims he already has his name. Oxygen asked if he had... Uh, a message for the serial killer, and he said, I am coming for you. I also want to one-on-one -on -one fight with you. What? Who is this guy? This guy is crazy. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. Goodbye.